welcome to the Health Advocate Podcast. In this episode, AWHA Chief Executive Alison Verhoeven speaks with Joseph Conti from the Staten Island Performing Provider System in the United States about the innovative work they are doing to deliver value-based healthcare to the residents of the region. Good morning or good evening, John. I'm not sure what time it is where we are with you today. It's now 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in New York City. Well, Joe Conte, we're very happy to um, welcome you to our podcast at the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association, part of a series leading up to the first national value-based healthcare conference in Australia. We were very much looking forward to you joining us in person uh, in Perth on the 27th and 28th of May this year, but unfortunately with the ongoing travel restrictions that's not going to be likely but we're very much looking forward at least to you joining us virtually uh, at the end of May for that first national conference. You're the CEO at the Staten Island Performing Provider System. Can you tell us a little bit about that organisation and the work that you're doing there Joe? Of course. And thank you very much for having me. And I certainly would have enjoyed making uh, the trip to you and seeing your beautiful country and all the great things that you're doing there. We were very happy to host a contingent uh, from Australia about two and a half years ago and very much enjoyed the collaboration and conversation and have kept that up uh, since. Uh, and I suspect uh, one of the reasons why uh, I'm joining you today. So uh, our organization was formed in April of 2015. Uh, We were part of 25 organizations that were created by the New York State Department of Health in order to implement a program known as the Delivery System Reform Incentive Program. Uh, The focus was the 6 million New Yorkers who are on Medicaid a government insurance for the underserved and those uh, that have been affected by disparities and health inequity. Uh, And that is in a very expensive program to New York State, over $65 billion annually, which the state spreads uh, with the federal government. So each of them uh, were very anxious to implement new strategies to improve outcomes, because in New York in particular, the complexity of the client population uh, led the results here consistently year after year to lag amongst the lower quartile in the United States in all of the major metrics. So it really was a major performance improvement and value-based purchasing focus so that we would get away from the emphasis on volume and shift to value. So what are some of the ways that you're you're actually um, trying to implement um, that spend and to make difference with your population? So um, when we began, uh, our first order of business was to engage a network of providers that consistently over time uh, collaborated, but much more so were competitive in every aspect of the healthcare system. And our focus was to uh, engage them 
in cooperative ways uh, to point out through a sophisticated data system that we implemented where the opportunities were to reduce excessive and preventable care, to focus on uh, the conditions that were most amenable to change, and then uh, to engage them with incentive payments to achieve very specific milestones that had been pre-agreed to between the New York State Department of Health and the federal government through its Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So, Joe, you mentioned a couple of a uh, couple of words there that really jumped out to me, and I guess I'd like to understand a little bit more what these mean to you. Um, you talked about collaboration um, and cooperation, but you also talked about competitive um, behaviours, um, and you mentioned conditions amenable to change. How does all that interact? Yeah, it's a it's a uh, terrific question and one that uh, is always evolving as are the answers uh, to those issues. But from a competitive standpoint, uh, in a in a fee for service world where everyone gets paid for producing a unit of service, the emphasis on uh, avoiding preventable care a focus on wellness, a collaboration amongst organizations throughout the continuum. So from the primary care to the specialist, to the hospital care, to nursing home, home care, therapy, behavioral health, pharmacy, all of that uh, really was um, emphasis was focused on volume. More cases, more activity, uh, and uh, not a sufficient emphasis on the fact that a better uh, integrated care, more collaborative care, where information is shared uh, amongst organizations that provide service to a partner, where a comprehensive treatment plan that's contributed to by multiple organizations and everyone delivering service within uh, pre-agreed upon scope of uh, the delivery system uh, is one that um, we had to uh, undertake in terms of this evolution. I think uh, structurally, uh, you know, it's easier said than done, as they say. Uh, so there needs to be structural change before you can make those process changes. And there needs to be the underpinning of financial change to support this um, focus. Because certainly, I don't think any provider uh, recognizes that um, avoidable care means risk. Avoidable hospitalization means risk. Uh, poor management of conditions that lead to chronic disease uh, diminishes the individual's quality of life, their life expectancy, and contributes to higher total cost of care throughout their lifetime. I mean, these are facts, and no one can dispute them. Um, but in a system where incentives are 
inversely associated with those facts and the right delivery model, people go along merrily doing what they have to do to keep their employees paid and keep their uh, system running. And uh, it really was, uh, during our experience here, an opportunity to have everybody step back from that approach, including the healthcare uh, payers or managed care organizations in, in our uh, environment, uh, because uh, CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, mandated that they participate in this program. So the alignment and the evolution of the payment model and the system of care delivery uh, began to move together in a more aligned fashion. And that left people looking for solutions uh, to issues that had existed for many years, but were not addressed through the healthcare system because they were felt to be outside of the realm of healthcare providers. It sounds like you had a mandated approach to change. There was a requirement to change and you worked with the providers to support them with you know, the financial incentives, um, the structures and the processes which would facilitate that change. Do you think that change would have been possible culturally without the mandated requirement? And do you have any lessons for us around supporting that cultural change? Sure, I mean, I think uh, form follows function. So when the payment model realigns, people change their approach to delivery system. And uh, once the emphasis is on uh, performance metrics, um, the emphasis is on things like social determinants of health, where in the, in the past these were not factors that were deemed to be within healthcare's purview of engaging. Uh, when uh, the ability to uh, collaborate with community-based organizations that do social care and faith-based organizations that do uh, spiritual and other a social type of um, outreach uh, is um, prioritized as important ingredients in outcomes, uh, I think that changes the culture right there. I, you know, I worked in uh, hospitals for uh, 30 years uh, before I started this work. And um, when I was the chief quality officer in a number of them, and we consistently looked at and struggled with chronic readmission rates in congestive heart failure and diabetes and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and mental health. And, you know, ultimately, many times it came back to the environment in which the individual lives, their capacity to engage in a full and thorough uh, treatment plan. The supports that they have socially, uh, all of these things were detriments to excellent treatment plans and care that they received from providers. So, uh, you know, from a cultural standpoint, I think providers embrace the idea that there is the ability now 
to fill in. If you think about a patient in a 360 degree geometric form and say, you know, as a provider, I can only address 180 degrees. And even if I'm perfect, only half of what I do is going to impact this person's outcomes, their wellness, their quality of life, their longevity, total cost of care. Uh, I think it's a frustration for providers when they see things go wrong that they believe if they could just have had these type of engagements through partnerships in the community. Um, they are very much, from a cultural standpoint, in favor of all of this work. The idea that social determinants of health are part of treatment planning, that uh, care coordinators, uh, chronic disease managers, navigators, uh, many of these new and evolving titles are part of their uh, treatment teams, uh, is embraced by providers. The fact that behavioral health is much more integrated and information is shared in a much more collaborative and thorough fashion. Again, likewise, uh, I hesitate to say it makes a provider's life easy because there's nothing easy about it, right? Uh, clearly, uh, these are still many challenges, especially in the population that we focus on where uh, health inequities and disparities, uh, you know, uh, unequal access to employment and education and, and all of that still drag on quality of life and, and outcomes. But the ability to create these bridges and grow them uh, is having an enormous impact. So are you collecting data on um, some of the, um, I guess, the interrelationships between the social determinants and the community services that are being provided and the health outcomes for your vulnerable population group? And I'm assuming you're undertaking, you know, at least ongoing evaluations around the impact of your programs. Any lessons for us from that and any learnings out of it? Sure. Uh, we absolutely measure everything. Uh, we are total uh, number geeks when it comes to, you know, pulling together outcomes. And because it's a core of the way we incentivize our providers, we have to be, right? Uh, we, we absolutely must uh, create uh, transparency with providers about what works and what does not work, or what programs uh, contribute to better outcomes so that they can participate in them. So uh, we look at uh, the statistics for individuals who engage and su are supported by social determinants of health, and we compare them to individuals who have not been engaged for whatever reason, or do not participate in those that kind of um, support service or practices that do not uh, participate for whatever reason they may have. And we consistently find that uh, emergency room use is nearly 40% higher with individuals who do not have social determinant of health support and hospitalizations are about 25% higher. 
pretty stunning statistics, aren't they? They are, uh, you know, it, it, you can argue with a lot of numbers, but those numbers are hard to argue with. And, you know, this is across um, all age groups. It's across all managed care payer uh, organizations. And we slice and dice these numbers in multiple ways uh, and look at the kind of conditions in which um, people are most sensitive to uh, these impacts. And it's consistent across the whole community that we work with. Uh, last year, we um, screened over 25,000 individuals for social determinants of health uh, programming needs. And we provided services to about 18,000 of them. And they went everything from medically tailored meals to food pantry access, uh, non-medical transportation for uh, office visits, uh, support in uh, access to a virtual care, whether it was behavioral or medical, uh, social isolation, um, housing insecurity, uh, asthma home visits. Um, you know, it's a very long list of uh, services that our network of social care providers uh, implement. And um, it's an amazing impact. That was the number uh, that I gave to you. 40% uh, and 25%. Uh, that group uh, compared to similarly situated individuals who are not part of that screening process, uh, that's the impact. And, you know, we screen uh, through our partners uh, everywhere. Uh, so sometimes it's in an emergency room setting, a clinical practice. It can be in a social setting, like a faith-based organization or a cultural organization. Uh, it can be uh, through um, uh, in public settings, at food pantries. We try to engage people in their everyday life. So this kind of, if you will, white coat syndrome does not uh, impact their willingness to open up about things that are honestly quite sensitive. You know, if someone shares with you uh, a response to a question, that I have not been able to adequately feed my family uh, in the past several weeks because of a loss of job or uh, incarceration of a loved one or whatever changes might be. There's nothing more intimate than that. Do you have um, a standardized screening tool to support the workers who are, you know, working with um, this cohort yes. of people? And also, do they then have some sort of authorization to immediately be able to, you know, provide some solution. Um, yes, know, issues 100%. Yeah. So we created our own instrument. Uh, we have a, a real whiz of an IT team here. Um, I've lost many friends hiring their best IT people away from them. Um, and, and there are commercially available products out there. But we, after seeing demos of two or three we said, you know, we can do this better uh, ourselves. Uh, we'll cut down on the expense and we can, you know, get the feedback from our community members 
about how they like to engage with the instrument. So first, yes, we do have a standardized tool. Uh, there's one that is an evidence-based instrument, and we kind of tailored it certain questions to our uh, demographics in our community. Uh, and that is used, and it can be used on a, a phone, it can be used on a tablet, it can be used in a laptop, it can be used on a desktop. And we created a curated list of service providers that respond to each of the needs that individuals may identify with. And while they're being screened, the first thing is they give consent for the information to be shared. They give consent for the information to be shared back to their primary care provider. They give consent that it goes to the health exchange. And they obviously consent for services. Now, they could say uh, no to any one of those things. If they don't want it to go back to the health exchange, it could be a no and still accept service. They don't want it to go back to a provider. For whatever reason, we encourage them. It could be uh, a no to that. But uh, as they identify, there are trigger questions. If you identify that I've had not had sufficient food for myself or my family in the last 10 days or longer uh, related to uh, issues in my uh, life, uh, that's a trigger question. By answering yes, it asks, how big is your household? Are there a minor children in, in the household that need special uh, services? And then we identify food pantries. We identify um, organizations where medically tailored meals might be made available if people have chronic medical conditions. Uh, we identify um, if there's an immediate need, you know, and they need to go someplace to feed their family right now. Uh, and there are groups that uh, operate uh, nearly around the clock in the community. And, you know, using the joy of Google Maps, we can tell them how far away they are from this organization, right? Right there at the time that they're being engaged. And, uh, you know, they may say, oh, you know, uh, I see you have four options. I tried two already. It didn't work out for me. I'll try the third one. And, uh, you know, that goes through the whole series of uh, activities. And they can also identify that they would like employment assistance, that they would like uh, support with getting, uh, you know, a high school uh, diploma assistance. They would like to be connected with uh, financial support or their insurance ran out or, it, you know, it, it lapsed for some reason. And we have navigators that will reach back out to them. So uh, when the survey is done, it takes less than 10 minutes usually. The people that are really skilled uh, can do it rather quickly. The individual gets back on their phone the results of the survey. So they have a little more agency. They're not just waiting for someone to call. They know who they will refer to. They know the phone number. Uh, they know the location uh, and all of that. And when the survey is completed, those referrals go out to the providers in the community automatically. It comes back to us, to our electronic data warehouse, and it's paired to their clinical profile that we have. If that individual has been served by one of our providers, it gets paired to that. And uh, there's a very high closure rate uh, uh, in food insecurity. Over 70% of services are met within 72 hours. Um, and a much higher percentage 
you know, as a more time goes on. But when there's urgent need, obviously, you don't care what happens in 10 days. If you have to feed your family now, it's a crisis. Um, and so we go through all of that. Uh, and then uh, the individual navigator will circle back with the client uh, within 30 days. Now, they can see when a need is met, they get a prompt into the profile of the individual that was created that says, Allison took care of the immediate housing need. Myla took care of uh, connecting the individual back to insurance. And Joe is going to uh, reconnect the individual back to their primary care doctor. And a, an appointment will be set up to get them back into the orbit of care because there are circumstances that are not good in terms of chronic disease management. So this has really uh, been an incredible, uh, incredibly valuable for us. It certainly sounds um, a really incredible piece of work. And I guess I'm reflecting on the quadruple aim that, um, you know, health providers across the world are aspiring to. Um, and I'm thinking in particular um, the patient experience, but also the provider experience is probably enhanced um, 100%. through this as well. Yeah. Right. I mean, as I said earlier, the frustration of a doctor who sees a young child for asthma, you know, after an emergency room visit during the middle of the night, the fear that occurs to the family, uh, you know, the, the absolute terror of not being able to breathe. And they see the patient and they say, what happened? You were here last week. We gave you the right medication. We gave you the right asthma action plan. We did all of these things. And they say, well, my landlord had the pest management people in and they used uh, a material to kill pests and it exacerbated the asthma and the person wound up in the emergency room. Or we mixed up the medications and took the rescue inhaler when we should have been taking the corticosteroids or, you know, whatever all of these things are that occur when a person leaves the doctor's office. Um, you know, these, at, these home visits have spurred an incredible interest in the community because, you know, we send in culturally competent people. So if you send in, you know, someone to a Haitian's home who has very poor understanding of the English language and only speaks Creole, you're not getting too far with asthma mitigation strategies. Uh, and we really work with, you know, a tremendous group of providers out there that uh, really manage all of this very well. And they take to heart, you know, very passionately the work in a way that they come back to us and say, to do better, we need to be able to have printers that could be, you know, on the belt of the person. Because when they got into the kitchen, the medication information was upside down, wasn't printed out in the language that the people speak. They didn't understand how to use the inhaler. They didn't understand. And they can print it out in the language that the individual speaks, put it right on, you know, uh, the refrigerator, uh, right on the medication cupboard, whatever it might happen to be. Uh, engage the landlord and say, you know, we can help you with pest mitigation strategies. 
We have a grant from the Clean and Healthy Homes Foundation, and we can have somebody come in here and seal up, you know, the seams where pests are coming from. Uh, we can mitigate the mold that is in your home. Uh, we even have gone as far as buying people hypoallergenic sheets and pillows. You know, these things cost about ten or fifteen dollars, and an emergency room visit costs about seven hundred. Hospitalization costs eight thousand. So if you're looking to see if there's any value there, I mean, the math is relatively simple. Absolutely. Look, it sounds like um, the work that you have done, particularly around you know developing innovative models of care, innovative ways of approaching you know some of the really tricky challenges around the social determinants of health, must have paid off very well for you, particularly in the last twelve months as you've grappled with COVID nineteen. From Australia, we've observed, um, you know, the impact of COVID-19 in the United States and elsewhere around the world um, and, you know, been in absolute awe of the health service providers that have had to respond to the most challenging of circumstances imaginable. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how, you know, the Staten Island approach set you up to be able to respond effectively to the challenges of the pandemic? Sure. Um, so I think some of the things that we did early on really paid off great dividends. And one was uh, we were promoting telehealth five years ago um, and not just promoting it, but actively engaging with providers throughout the community, um, actively promoting patient-facing apps uh, that would connect individuals to their providers and to their peers. Uh, we had one um, in a medical uh, setting uh, that focused on behavioral health. Uh, we had another one that focused on uh, diabetes, congestive heart failure, uh, and asthma, and a safe childbirth, uh, identifying individual uh, women with uh, preeclampsia or hypoglycemia. So we were doing this five years ago. So when you know COVID hit and the practices shut down, people couldn't be seen, uh, they really were able to fall back very quickly to not only using virtual uh, visits, but the patient-facing apps that we had promoted uh, really took off in a very uh, important way. Uh, and they paid a tremendous amount of dividends, especially in the behavioral health setting. I mean, my greatest fear when things were... Um, being shut down early on, it's a year ago, uh, I guess this Sunday passed, that things truly, you know, came to a halt, if you will, uh, was that behavioral health and substance use disorder, uh, chronic mental illness clients really would be so adversely affected because the, the need for virtual care became paramount, and I just could not fathom how that could be delivered the way we're talking now. Well, I found out that my fear was misplaced, uh, that in fact, the behavioral health took off nearly immediately. In fact, it, we spent more time training providers how to use the instruments and tools and expand their capacity to do it in many ways than we ever have had to worry about patients at all. 
So this really was a, a significant learning. Um, the other thing that we did learn was that in the primary care practices, federally qualified health centers, that there really was disruption with people with chronic disease. Um, individuals had a very difficult time in uh, getting um, the kind of testing that they needed, hemoglobin A1C, um, uh, you know, uh, LDL, uh, you know, many of these tests, uh, people were frightened to death to go to laboratories and uh, providers really had to come up with uh, some unique approaches uh, to manage their patients with chronic disease and, and work through that and get um, chronic disease management uh, workers focused and engaged in people much more frequently than they would have uh, in, in other times. And also remote patient monitoring became much more important because especially for the fragile, uh, the, the ones at high risk, uh, the hypertensives, the people with uh, out of control blood sugar, uh, uh, congestive heart failure, uh, we began to deploy a lot of technology uh, into the homes and not wait to see if the plans would support that. To what extent do you think some of those innovations and, you know, particularly that use of technology will be retained in the post-COVID world as you shift out of this and how will that change the way Staten Island does business in the future? I think it's going to change the way everybody does business in the future. Um, certainly in our community, uh, we started our Population Health 2021 rollout um, last month, and uh, we have included it in every provider's uh, incentive program to uh, continue uh, with virtual visits to expand uh, chronic disease management to expand our remote patient monitoring. Again, when indicated, it's not for everybody. It's not necessary for everybody. Uh, you know, you can get provider fatigue when too much information is coming in from people who are in control and you don't need it. Uh, but this has been, again, back to the form follows function, that people get incentivized to do the work. Uh, we're very big into the workforce training aspect of things. Uh, we train over 100 community health workers a year uh, through a local college, and we scholarship those individuals. They're uh, in apprenticeships, so when they come out, they work uh, for a 1,000 hours before they get their full uh, apprentice uh, certification. But these individuals are critical uh, to the programming going forward. So we really try to come at it from all of these angles and certainly continue to expand the social determinants of health as the underpinning to this work, along with the other leg of the stool, if you will, which continues to be the utilization of uh, information exchange, data technology, because you know the ability to hotspot, geomap, to look at where inequities are manifesting themselves as poor outcomes, uh, the ability to create programs that are unique uh, to certain populations. You know, this is the only way no matter how rich an organization might be or a country might be, or there are never enough resources. So being able to prioritize and identify where to put 
services to address disparities and also to be able to appreciate where that rising risk is. Because it's not too hard to see the top of the iceberg. It's what you can't see that kills you. So, you know, our focus now really is trying to uh, identify algorithms working with a couple of academic partners so that rising risk can be put in front of providers, whether they're behavioral health providers or medical providers or social providers, and say, there's a change going on in the circumstances that this individual is experiencing, whether it's, you know, steadily rising blood sugars or steadily rising hypertension, but something that's not above a standard measure so that you know, okay, they're not there yet, they're not there yet. If you intervene now, they won't get there. But if you don't, it's only a matter of time before they make their way up above the waterline and become that next crisis. And, and that's really why when we talk about these numbers of 42% and 25%, people say, how can that be real? It's got to be specific to the community that you're dealing with. The answer is, that's absolutely untrue. You know, our efforts are not just for those people at the top of the pyramid. We really try to dig into that rising risk cohort and engage people before they get to those places and support the practices uh, with the kind of training and technology that they need to be able to move into these value-based payment paradigms because there's enormous risk for practices in value-based payments. If you move into what we call a level two, which is some level of shared downside risk, or a level three, which is full upside, full downside risk, Practices are terrified of that because if they have a bad year or they end up with a bad cohort, I shouldn't say bad in a pejorative way, a very sick cohort, a lot of comorbidities, a lot of critical illnesses, um, they really could face catastrophic financial consequences. So a lot of what we are trying to do is to organize groups together into what we call, and I'm sure you have heard it, there's nothing new about this, accountable care organizations, where they share risk together, they share information, they share best practices, uh, they can focus on uh, the utilization of certain types of services in the post-hospital period for those who are hospitalized, they can utilize um, cohorts of specialists that are thoughtful about testing and invasive procedures and prescribing expensive medications that share information well. And this is a big part of what we are trying to work with our providers now, is to prepare them for uh, the future state, which you know we expect within three years, tops four years, that uh, you know, the great majority of care, perhaps seven, as much as 75%, will be based upon value and not volume. And there will be risk associated with providers who do not meet those metrics. I think you've added an important perspective, though, that um, when you talk about shifting risk from the payer to the provider, 
that you're also trying to give them strategies to mitigate those risks. 100%. Sure that those risks are manageable within, you know, the powers that they have. Well, and they also need to be part of the solution with social determinants of health. This is not inexpensive. It's inexpensive compared to what the alternative is when the wheels come off the train and you have a catastrophe, but it's certainly uh, much less expensive when you intervene early, you intercept that rising risk, you promote better health and wellness, and you engage at a level that um, really is impactful earlier on. And, you know, um, we have convinced several large plans um, to participate uh, with significant amounts of money uh, in this work uh, because they have seen the benefits uh, and they realize that, if you will, uh, or as we call it, the gravy train is coming to an end where they could sit back and say, well, you know, this was part of the delivery system incentive program and that money was there to be made for these services. Um, our funding through that model came to an end. Uh, the last payment cycle was uh, September of last year. <clears throat> so our work now is fully funded by um, the work that we're doing for plans uh, in this space, uh, our technology work uh, that we're doing for uh, quite a number of uh, organizations and uh, the work that we're doing in care coordination for some of the plans, as well as uh, uh, in the, at the end of the delivery system program, there was a, a bonus pool that was available to organizations uh, who met the highest standards of performance throughout the full five years of the program. And we earned $62.5 million from that bonus pool. So that was uh, a significant uh, corpus of funds to allow us to continue our work uh, for several years out while we grow these other funding platforms. It sounds incredibly exciting, Joe. We're really looking forward to hearing more about it when you speak to the people who are gathering for our, our conference on the 27th and 28th of May. Um, I personally would love to come to Staten Island sometime and see what you're doing um, myself. And I know that you would have liked to have been in Perth in May uh, to talk you know, directly with our colleagues here. Unfortunately, the world has kind of got in our way, um, but hopefully that will happen sometime in the near future. But just incredible work that you're doing, really impressed with um, both the outcomes you're achieving for individuals and your community, um, but importantly also um, the change you're making in the way that providers experience the provision of care too, that this is a more positive experience for all involved. So really looking forward to hearing from you uh, later on in May. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. For more information about the AAHA and the Value-Based Healthcare Conference, visit awha.asn.au.